Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So I'm one of those people who like to shave every so often. But with the personal mission to make more sustainable choices, buying plastic razors just feels wrong. Then the plastic-free Lodoho safety razor showed up in my life. I was a little nervous at first since I've never used a household razor on my skin before, but I was surprised by my experience. The Vodoho safety razor glided across my skin with ease and left me with an irritation-free shave that makes me feel like a slippery seal. Safe to say I'm excited to have this be a part of my new root shaving routine. Vodoho is offering our community a 10% discount using the code PODCORN10, and that's P-O-D-C-O-R-N-10, PODCORN10. Happy shaving if that's what you like to do. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Renee Powers here. And today I am so thrilled to be sitting down with Jennifer Cation Armstrong. She wrote the book, When Women Invented Television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneered the way we watch today. I want to tell you a little bit about Jennifer before we get started. So Jennifer Cation Armstrong is the New York Times bestselling author of Seinfeldia, How a Show About Nothing Changed Everything. The book, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and the book, Sex and the City and Us, How Four Single Women Changed the Way We Think, Live, and Love. She worked at Entertainment Weekly for a decade and has written for many publications, including BBC Culture, New York Times Book Review, Vice, New York Magazine, and Billboard. And she also speaks about pop culture history and creativity, and she lives in New York City. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I, um, this is just right up my alley. I am just thrilled to be doing this today. So we do ask uh, most of our guests right off the bat the same question, and that is, what does it mean to you to be feminist? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I've had, a, I feel like a long history with that word that goes back to um, women's studies classes, probably like so many people. Um, I still get nostalgic for that because I feel like it was really my first entree into that idea and was so excited. I remember my mom even said I was too feminist at the time, which was oh, very exciting to me. I've I don't think that. that now. I think it was just, you know, in in the years since, I have always embraced it. Um, I had this very crazy era of my life in the 2000s where with a friend, I started a feminist blog because that's what you did in the 2000s. Okay, which blog? Um, it was called, it was called Sexy Feminist. And you know, I've evolved. We probably both have evolved a little since then and maybe don't have all of the exact same ideas. But what I loved about it is first of all, I was with my best friend, Heather Wood Rudolph. Um, and you know, doing this thing that was like this new brand new idea. And we were getting it all out. And it was really about how we had felt like we had all these ideas for our women's magazine I, like articles. But we knew at that time, I think it's very different now, but at that time we knew they wouldn't publish them. Like I tried to pitch a story about canceling my wedding and they were kind of like, they were all like, well, that's kind of a bummer. Um, there's no happy ending, you know? And I was, so we got very fired up and started this blog and um, really explored our, how our own feminism worked in our lives through kind of writing in public, which maybe is not the best idea. Um, but we even get to write a book called Sexy Feminism eventually. And again, it's a capsule in time is what I would say. <laughs> I, I'm not disavowing it, but I think you were all, all of us are always evolving as feminists. 
And um, that was us then. We were young, we were excited. Um, it was a different time also in culture. And it's been really great to shift um, kind of after that. And I almost, it was a little bit deliberate to more like sending my feminism through my work as a culture writer. And that's what I've really tried to do ever since. Even a book like Seinfeldia, which is obviously about Seinfeld and no one is like, Seinfeld is clearly a feminist television show. <laughs> yeah. Landmark, you know, it has a lane. And also... I think I still brought my feminism to writing that book. I talked a lot about Elaine and was able to kind of ask all of these mostly men who made this show, how they wrote her, what they were thinking about at the time. So even something like that, I think I brought that to it. And certainly more, you know, it's more obvious in the rest of my work when women invented television, sex in the city, um, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And so that's really what I'm always trying to do. I'm working on a book now about Mean Girls and a very similar situation and that is really interesting because I'm able to actually I'm really getting into like the feminism of the 2000s and that time when we were going from everyone saying they weren't a feminist to everyone embracing it and kind of I'm not sure I'm not sure which is better in some ways so kind of that pink shiny sexy feminism of the time I'm sort of able to explore through Mean Girls and that has been really fun. I have so many things I want to comment on. First, <laughs> if I recall correctly, Elaine is maybe the first, possibly the second to lose the no masturbation contest that they all have. That is correct. That's and feminist. One of the itself. greatest. I love that. So, and, that, and the fact that it's about JFK Jr. is just like that, <laughs> that is, part of it. So she has the best one. Like she has the actual best plot line in, you know, I think quintessential Seinfeld episode like I think that is the perfect Seinfeld episode and she has the best plot by far and I think it's because they push themselves because they really they told me this they said if she's gonna be in the contest we said she has to have a really good reason to get out and <laughs> they worked extra hard on that and it was John John oh <laughs> no okay the next thing I want to comment on is how many of us kind of cut our teeth on feminist blogs in the early 2000s holy yeah. cannoli I attribute most of my feminism, not necessarily to my women's studies degree, but to feministing and oh, feministing. everyday oh. feminism and bust <laughs> and bitch. And like, this is what kind of compelled me to deepen my feminism. I also want to comment on the fact that yes, our feminisms are ever evolving. And if we right? think we know it all, it is time to go back to stage one because we cannot understand it all. We cannot understand everybody's lived experiences and relationships with feminisms. And I use feminism plural for a mm -hmm. reason right. because we all have different relationships to it. The last thing I want to comment on, <laughs> I can't wait for the Mean Girls book, all time favorite movie. It's really fun and really interesting. And like, I wouldn't do this except like, at first I was actually skeptical of my own idea. I was like, just throwing stuff out. And my agent was like, wait, yes, Mean Girls, that would be great. And then I was like, will that work? And then once I really looked into it, I realized there's a lot there. It's not just the movie, it's the feminism, it's the, it's the time, it's the two ta 2000s, it's the fashion. I'm particularly interested in tabloid culture of the time and the way they treated young women. There's a lot to work with there and, you know, has the great line, you know, those are like the rules of feminism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, Gretchen Wieners. <laughs> Gretchen Wieners is the real hero. That is, that is my hot take. I, I respect that hot take. Okay, changing gears. When yeah. women invented television, this came out last spring, March 2021. 
I just came across it um, from another podcast, recommended it. And I was like, "Eh, okay, that sounds good. That sounds cool. Um, Betty White had just passed and Betty White was one of the four women that you chose to profile in this book. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about um, which four women you chose to profile and why these four women? Absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's a huge part of this book, of course. And really what happened was um, I wrote a book about the Mary Taylor Moore show, came out back in 2013. And when I was doing the research for that is kind of when I got the kernels of the idea for this one. So um, the two things that happened were I asked the creators, James L. Brooks and Alan Burns, um, about some of the um, inspirations behind the character of Rhoda, Mary's best friend, who's Jewish and brash and New York and all of this stuff. And they had a bunch of answers. But in the course of this discussion, they mentioned um, Gertrude Berg as kind of, um, you know, a, a foremother in a sense, and, you know, particularly as a Jewish woman. And um, I was like, I don't know who that is. And they were like, oh my God, she's huge. And when I looked her up at the time, I was like, oh my God, she was huge. How she was this incredibly famous woman, like very, very famous in the late forties and fifties. And I mean, actually before that, even on radio. So she had one of the first, really the first successful family sitcom on television. And she had brought her show over from radio. It was called The Goldbergs. It was about a Jewish family in a Bronx tenement. And she wrote, directed, started, um, produced, created the show. Um, she was such an auteur. And I mean, that's like, I had no idea there was a woman doing that. And she was basically doing even more than Lucy was doing on her own show. You know, it was like crazy. And it was before Lucy. So that's when I was like, that's interesting. Um, so kind of tucked that away. And then actually also during the Mary Tyler Warshow book, the other thing they said to me is when we were talking about the character that uh, Betty White played, Sue Ann Nivens, the happy homemaker. This is a character who the joke of her is kind of like, she's super, she has her own like homemaking show on the local station where Mary works. You know, she's super, super sweet on camera. And the minute the camera goes off, she's like stone cold bitch. And like this voracious, you know, she's just amazing. Um, super, you know, great at insults, all of this stuff. So that's the joke. And the joke, the, the way that they described it in their script was she's a Betty White type on screen, but then the minute the cameras go off, you know, and I was like, okay, but I didn't, and they were like amazed that they were actually able to get Betty White to play this character after having described her that way. And I was like, but I don't understand because to me, like, I didn't know what Betty White was mm-hmm. before the Mary Tyler Moore show. And they were like, oh yeah, she had this whole career really early in television. So again, went to the Google, looked this up. Turns out, you know, she was basically one of the first um, daytime talk show hosts uh, on the air locally in Los Angeles, five and a half hours a day, six days a week. They did not know what to do during the day on television. So they were like, you go. Um, No script, nothing. Just her and a co-host making stuff up for all that time. And um, explains a lot about her camera presence, I think. And she also, during this, what, you know, on the side, created and started her own sitcom called Life with Elizabeth. And again, this was before, you know, Lucy or like right around, hers was right around the time. Um, but it was like, wait, I always thought Lucy was like it. You know, I thought like, oh, isn't it crazy how the biggest pioneer of early television is a woman? That's amazing. And it is. But it turned out she was not alone as a, mm-hmm. as a woman mm-hmm. in the business at the time. 
um, a lot of women and a lot of people of color were going into TV early, essentially kind of seeing that they had a moment before the white men who were running radio at the time, which was the big thing, that's where all the money was. So they were staying over there for a time. And the women and people of color had this sense that like, maybe if I go over there now, I can kind of get a little piece of it. And it was sort of like the wild west. So once I realized this was happening, I just made a huge list of all the women working in television at the time. And I was specifically, I really like, it was always when women invented television for me. So I always wanted women who had some like influence, not just that they were on camera because there were some fabulous women like an Audrey Meadows who was on camera and there's no shame in that. But I really wanted like a creative and cultural contribution. And so that was, and also I just had to narrow them down. So, you know, that was one way I narrowed them down. And then from there, I was kind of looking to have four, you know, I think four is a magic number. You see it in even the, the shows that I've written about and many other shows, right? Golden Girls, Sex and the City, um, Seinfeld. The reason it's four is usually, I think that's like about the max we can usually handle with characters. I was going to pick four and looked for different um elements that they could represent that once I was going to narrow it down to four. So I knew I wanted Betty because she was my Trojan horse and she was the one you were going to know. The rest I kind of wanted like semi, semi unknown or not as known to everyone people. So Gertrude, you know, she was, she was sort of a no brainer. She was so huge and she was so influential and also was one of my first inspirations. So now I have two more slots and I filled them with Hazel Scott, who was a black woman who was a huge, 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 she's another one. I cannot believe everyone doesn't know who she is. Huge star at the time, like Beyonce of her time. She was a jazz musician. She was married to Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was a very famous congressman at the time, like one of our first black congressmen, very handsome and charismatic and stuff too. You know, she had, she was the first black person to host a primetime national show, period. And this is something that has been routinely actually forgotten to the point where like the African-American Museum had to make a correction on their own wall because they had like Nat King Cole up there at first. So, you know, this was huge and totally forgotten. And she was also just like, she's so gorgeous and glamorous and charismatic. And she was a huge civil rights activist and just incredible. And so I really wanted her in the mix. And then, um, so now we've got like her and Gertrude are both primetime stars and they're from New York. Betty's in LA, she's doing daytime. And then my fourth spot went to Erna Phillips who created the daytime soap opera, period. Like she created the genre when she was on radio and was hugely successful on radio. She was making $250,000 a year in the 40s, in 40s money. That's like millions now. She was just outrageously successful and eventually brought the soap opera over to television. Really unique individual. So she was never in front of the camera and like the other three, um, but an unbelievable businesswoman and powerhouse and mentored a lot of the other people who went on to make soaps later she one of her creations is the guiding light which has the record for the longest running drama in broadcast history period because it went from radio to television you know she raised two children on her own um as a single mom she adopted them she did this by choice she was never married and to think of doing that at that time it's just you know there was no support for any of this sort of thing so 
And she did you it know, all from Chicago. She, and she was she in was, Chicago too. So she so was very repping the Midwest, which I appreciate. Right. Which was really cool and interesting. And, you know, speaking of which, even that was even something that I look for in my women was the, the family choices they had had to make too. So like Betty had been divorced twice and her second divorce came specifically because her husband at the time was very dreamy and she was very into him, but he did not want um, a working wife, like to the level that she was becoming when she was becoming successful. And they broke up while she was on the rise with her talk show. And she did it deliberately. She chose that. She said, I knew I had to choose between a husband and my career and I love my work. And I thought that was fascinating. And Gertrude Berg was a mother of two and they were grown by the time she was on television, but she had a, an outrageously supportive husband for the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He typed her scripts for her. You know, Hazel Scott was married to Adam Clayton Powell and they had a young son at the time that she was on television in 1950. So I thought like they all had these slightly different family situations to deal with as well. And it was interesting to see the ways that they spun their personal lives publicly as well, because that was something they had to do. They had to convince the public that that they were safe and okay and not mm. scary ladies who were, you know, abandoning their children for their careers. Well, and I think that we have a little bit of cultural amnesia too, that when we think about the 30s, 40s, 50s, we think about just Susie Homemaker, you know, leave it to Beaver from these kinds of shows that came after them, right? But the truth of, of being a woman in the US especially is so much different and had it had opportunities for nuance, like, you know, adopting children on your own, like divorcing twice by the time you're before you're 30. I think that we forget that those choices existed and women made those choices because we want to put the past in a, you know, a make America great again, branded box. Yes. And especially those fifties. I mean, those fifties, we cannot, we still can't outrun them. It seems mm -hmm. like I'm fascinated by this era uh, in television, because it feels like something was, something happened there. And I think it's just as simple as this was really when TV took off and took hold of our imaginations for the first time. And you have to cast yourself back. I mean, I think it's nearly impossible for us to fully understand, but I tried my best to sort of cast yourself back in the time machine and go like, they went from not having television to like, there's a box in your house where people show up, like famous people are on it in your living room when they weren't before. And you can mm -hmm. see them and they're moving and they're talking to you. And it's just hard to overstate. I know that, I mean, obviously movies were a big deal too and they had seen movies, they weren't, you know, completely in the dark, but just the difference, there's a huge difference between going to a movie and having Betty White in your living room five and a half hours a day, six days a week. And I think that's one of the reasons why television is such an intimate medium because it is in the home and who is at home, especially in the daytime as women were typically at home. And so it was seen as kind of a feminine medium as well. It was run by women, invented by women, as you're arguing. And it is kind of, it's not kind of, it is definitely subversive in so many. And these women that you write about are, are subversive in so many ways as well. I know though, that you ran into several obstacles writing this because recordings don't exist right exactly what, what did you do <laughs> um well I think this is a, a big part of why these women's stories haven't been told but I, I didn't feel like there was you know I felt like there was enough that we could tell the story 
And just because we couldn't see the recordings didn't mean that we shouldn't tell their stories. And of mm-hmm. course, I believe, you know, so Lucille Ball is a genius and we need to acknowledge that. But on top of that, a huge part of why we all still know her and we're still doing like a lot of Lucy this year. Part of the reason we can still talk about her in this immediate way is that is because the recordings were preserved so well that they were shown throughout our childhoods. They continue to be streamed. Like that's crazy. Most of these other shows at that time didn't have that. And that's because a lot of them were live. I found this fascinating. It's like technology is interesting to me. It was a point of pride, early television to like Gertrude didn't want to go to tape even after like Lucy was proving that this was, it was better to go to tape and you could, then you can have reruns and you can show it at different time zones and all of this. But you can see how it was like sort of a macho thing. Like I'm doing it live. I'm doing it the real way. And so for a while, a lot of people kept with the live even after tape was sort of starting to happen, but they didn't realize the implicate, they weren't, they couldn't be like, well, but history will forget me because there won't be reruns on TBS, you know? Um, They didn't know people were going to want reruns. And so a lot of these, they literally would just like, it's crazy, but they didn't realize people would want to see a TV show after it aired. So they just like tape over stuff, Mm -hmm. even though they had kinescopes, which is like their version of the best that they could do, which is where it's sort of like a bootlegged copy of a movie. It's like they would point a camera <laughs> at a monitor that was on. So imagine you're, we're, we're doing the Goldbergs live, but the cameraman has a monitor that he can see while he's shooting, right? So then they'd point a separate camera at that and tape what was on that so that they could send it, for instance, to the, the West Coast to show at a later time. Oh, so the West wild. Coast would get these terrible copies seen at a later date. And that's just the way it was then because of the way that it li- we literally weren't wired yet yeah. to like just send stuff all the way to the West Coast. So this is all mind boggling to me, but all of this amounts to, we have lost a number of, of pieces of television history. So you can, for instance, and I highly recommend looking up like the Betty White show from 1954, which was her national talk show, which she got after her success of the Los Angeles talk show. Um, You can see recordings of this even on YouTube and that sort of thing online. Um, And she is delightful and she sings and it's wonderful, but nothing exists of Hollywood on television, which was her first talk show. And this is to me a travesty just because some of the stuff that she's talked about that was on there, not to mention all the things that I don't even know about that might've happened on there. Um, You know, she talks about Buster Keaton coming on and kind of improving with her during some of her ad spots that she would do. <laughs> like, how can we not have that on recording? That's crazy. And it happened more than once. And Hazel Scott's show is completely lost so far. Um, there are inklings out there that there might, there's there are rumors that there might be like a copy in Canada somewhere. I'm not making that up. Um, and people are on it, but so far hasn't happened. And that's, you know, they really just didn't think they needed to keep this stuff but she supposedly her band was was charlie mingus and um max rose which like at that like if you know about these things that too was a really big deal but we can't see it we don't know so with those kinds of things you know betty had talked about the show hollywood on television enough and there were other descriptions out there um, Hazel's show, something that happened at this time, thank goodness for people like us, like Variety and Billboard were really on top of everything at this time. 
in this very like granular way. So they actually would review a number of shows weekly, almost like you were getting recaps. So it was like their, their, their version of recaps. And so there were a lot of reviews, thank goodness, of Hazel's show as it was progressing. So I can, so you have a real sense because they describe it of what would happen on a, a show. You know, it looked like a penthouse set and she would play her songs on the piano with her band behind her. They would tell you which songs she played, all of this stuff. So at least down to even, they would tell you like about the advertisements. We have good records of that, but there's no actual recording of the show. So you can't really know everything that happened for sure. The good news is we do have the documentation of like the rise of her show. So it's like, you can see where it goes from one day a week in New York to several days a week in New York to several days a week nationally. You see the reviewers saying like, we love the show, we need more Hazel Scott, she's amazing. Um, so, you know, you get all of that. Erna and, and Gertrude's work was were both documented quite quite a bit better. Um, the, the early soap operas, not the first one, but most of the other earlier ones you can get. They're fascinating to watch if you can find someone online. And Gertrude, not every, all of the Goldbergs is preserved, but enough is preserved that there's actually a DVD set, so. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember my mom watching The Guiding Light as I was growing up. So yeah. when that came up, I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is history that I experienced. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it was on a long time. <laughs> and I know that there are so many through lines of, even though it's not all preserved as well as we'd like it to be, there's so many through lines between, you know, Gertrude Berg to the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and soap operas to Shondaland as a whole. You even mentioned at one point that Alicia Keys kind of did a Hazel Scott moment where she played two pianos at once at the Grammys, I believe, yes. and she hosted. Yes. Um, two years ago, something like that. I was so, I had just started writing this book and I was like screaming in my living room, <laughs> no one, because like no one cared, um, you know, but I was I so care. excited. I cared deeply. So random. to me. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, just scream to me. Um, <laughs> but who do you see kind of, uh, this, this question is twofold because we need to wrap up, but who do you see kind of carrying the torch of these four women in particular and into kind of a more feminist, I, I would think we went really conservative for a long time and yeah. we are seeing a new golden era of television now. And so yeah. who do you see kind of carrying on that torch to a more feminist television terrain? I mean, I think I, I do just want to say, because I feel like with Betty White, even with her death, I mean, I think we recognized more of the breadth of her career, but I think that I still felt like the beginning of her career was lost in that discussion. And the reason I think it's the most important is both because she was a pioneer and also because, you know, she was a feminist badass. And I feel like people wanted to make her into this like sweet old lady. She was so much more than that. And just think of like the mind bogglingness of her career yeah. that she was able to jump every time there was like a big jump in technology that most people don't make the jump with. She went. She went from this era to the 80, the heyday of the sitcom to, you know, all the way through to the, her sort of revival in the 2010s when she basically became famous for being memeable. Yep. And right. I mean, it was the Snickers commercials. It was, um, she was on Hot in Cleveland, which is like the cable era. Think of this woman also who started out on one of the first broadcasts ever on television and ends up being able to live a life where she owns, she can have Netflix and be on it. You know, I mean, that's crazy. And I think, so I just want to say like, 
Betty White herself was carrying the torch all the way through until New Year's Eve of last year. Amen. Um, but I think of, you know, I think of someone like Hazel Scott and I was really thinking of, and this isn't super modern, but I was thinking of like an, a character like Claire Huxtable mm. on the Cosby show, but even going all the way through till now where we have, I just think if she could see insecure, what would she, I don't know what she'd think to be honest, but <laughs> you know, some of our, our TV now may be shocking to these women, but like, I think she'd really be really, really stoked to see that kind of thing in the way that you have an Issa Rae who has like her own empire and is mentoring people herself and is really, I think, carrying, very much carrying the torch for somebody like Hazel who was very interested in particularly how Black women were portrayed. And that meant she she had a lot of control over her own kind of persona, but she was very, whenever she could, she was also very interested in how all Black women were being portrayed. Um, so I think she'd be fascinated to see the, just the variety. It's so nice that we have actual variety now. Um, I do think of Erna Phillips as kind of um, a Shonda of her time to some extent, just, just having this huge empire, but also the addictiveness of her shows. She really pioneered. I mean, she, I don't know who could claim to invent the cliffhanger. That's a concept that was sitting right there in storytelling, but she really perfected it in soap operas. And she also, something she did that's fascinating in back even in her radio days is she's one of the first to see the potential of the um, hospital show. Yes. And the lawyer show. Yes. She had a lot of, you can learn about this in the book, but there was a lot of lawyer action in her life for various reasons. She got very fascinated with the law and courts and she actually had law consultants on tap for her shows I saw some of the memos that went back and forth to like figure like how would this murder conviction work and that kind of thing so I I feel like even that even something like Grey's Anatomy was a a direct debt to Erna Phillips and um you know Gertrude Berg to me you know I think I think of her kind of almost as an Oprah of her time um just because she had this empire we didn't talk about this but she didn't just she really traded on her persona as America's favorite Jewish mother. And she had a very successful cookbook, which you could still buy to this day. And she didn't cook. Um, That's my favorite thing about that. It's crazy. That's, I mean, it's part of the the Maisel connection too, but she, she had this very successful cookbook, Jewish, it's Molly Goldberg's Jewish cookbook. And there are a lot of recipes in it. I'm telling you, I own it. Um, Get it for Passover, but she did not cook in real life. And she also dressed beautifully in real life, but she had a line, very successful line of low cost house dresses for women who wanted to emulate more like her character than, than her. She wore furs and beautiful jewelry and gloves and the hat and the whole thing. But um, she really traded on this persona and even had like a motherhood advice column, a bunch of like, she was very much this lifestyle guru, which we see everyone doing now. You see Mm -hmm. Reese Witherspoon or, you know, anybody like that. But this was something she really helped to pioneer and understood how to use her persona. I'm so indebted to you for introducing me to three of these women that I didn't know already. And it's such a 
I don't know. I'm a little angry at my women in television professor for not bringing these women they into didn't the know. <laughs> it's, it's probably not your professor's fault. I have to tell you, even though I pitched this as kind of like hidden figures for early television, even with that conceit in my head, I still went out to do research and like got a couple of these big definitive books that were like histories of that time. And everyone's like, you have to read this one. And I got them and I still figured like they'd be somewhere in there. So I went to the index and was like, Berg, Gertrude, let's go. No. And to me, especially Gertrude, like for Gertrude yes. to there yes. is, is truly, I was like, I was like upset. I was like gonna email oh. the author or something, even though it's a 30, 40 year old book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the things that you're doing with this book that is, is, I'm not going to say that those other authors are anti-Semitic, but I'm not not saying that. <laughs> I think that you're, you're opening up the lens to more than just pretty white women that were on camera. That's right. You're talking about exactly. the women behind the camera as well and the ones that shaped the culture. And so I, I think that we get such a bigger, more interesting picture when we go beyond the camera, beyond that kind of uh, celebrity. So thank right. you for that. Um, we do have to wind down. So one thing we do ask all of our guests is if you could recommend a book to our audience that is not one of your own, what book would you recommend? I am going to, I would recommend the book that came out, I think two years ago called Can't Even by Anne Helen Peterson. That is about millennial burnout. Yep. And I just like flew through this thing and I'm actually like a little, like a little too old for it to be a millennial, but us Xers really actually fit right in there. She could have not said that. And I would have related so much to all of this because it's pretty similar. We were just a tiny bit ahead, like missed a little bit of the technology and stuff, but it's really fascinating. And it does have a lot of feminist elements because especially when she gets into things like work burnout and childcare. And I was, to be honest, I shouldn't be, I don't know why I was totally shocked to read the statistics on still the division of household labor what men what are you doing what's going on like I'm truly gobsmacked to read that women are still doing such disproportionate amounts of the work and my guess is that this happens even more once you have children I do not have children so not to, I'm not trying to brag I'm just saying like I'm just really lucky in, in my household if anything he does more um he really likes to vacuum you know, I was just truly like shocked by that. And my God, it's like, so she talks so much about though the economic effects of the last 20 years. And that was the part that was really relatable to me and the, the squeeze of freelance, the freelance economy, which is super relatable to me. And it's just one of these things where you read it and you're like, you feel so much better, even though it's all about how terrible life is yeah. just because you you think you're the only one that's going through all of this and it turns out like we're all going through it and then there's this weird extra pressure to pretend you're not um which is a part of this it's the pressure of sort of instagram and pretending your life is is perfect and you're not having any problems so it really i totally recommend this and she's great yeah. and i um, think ann would i think she'd call it a, a feminist book yeah it's um, it's not overt it's not like this yeah. is you know this is my feminist manifesto, but yeah. it has, but she is most certainly, a, she is very feminist, a great feminist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's not great. Like she had other books that were more overtly that way, but somehow, like I said, it's weird because it does feel a little like every chapter is just like, and here's how everything sucks. But <laughs> there's something that also, I think, especially after the last two years 
it's even more exaggerated now mm-hmm. and it feels very comforting like okay I'm at least it, at least I know I'm not crazy and that it's not that I made all the wrong life choices it's that we're all going through this and things are genuinely different and it's it's actually great for our discussion today because it's I don't think she says this too overtly but it's to me it was very much like it is not the fifties anymore. Mm. You know what I mean? And in, in these other ways, like life is a lot more complicated for, for us now than it was for people then, or even, you know, our parents. And so it just feels comforting, even if it is mostly about how terrible everything is. Great recommendation. Well, thank you so much. Where can we find you online if we want to connect further or see when the Mean Girls book comes out? Um, so I'm at jenniferkarmstrong.com and you can like get all the other stuff from there, but usually on social media, I am JMK Armstrong. So that's Twitter and and Instagram. You can find me there too. Fantastic. We will link all those in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me. And I, I can't wait to read all the other books. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.